From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The federal government puts cannabis in the same category as the world's most dangerous drugs. That could change under a new recommendation. What it could mean for Colorado. It's an enormous historic move, but it's still incredibly far short of what pretty much everyone in the cannabis industry wants. Meanwhile, people concerned about high-potency strains and kids aren't thrilled with the HHS recommendation either. Are they really looking and talking to people in the communities, especially in Colorado, that have been very severely negatively impacted? Later, an update I wish I didn't have for you. A Denver woman has lost her battle with colon cancer. She and her husband were both diagnosed with it at a young age. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Cannabis might be reclassified as a less dangerous drug, similar to ketamine rather than heroin. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services made this recommendation this week. The change could have far-reaching consequences, even here where cannabis is legal under state law and tightly regulated. John Schroyer joins us, senior reporter for Green Market Report, which covers the cannabis industry. He's based in Denver. And hi, John. Morning, Ryan. You've called this the biggest cannabis news story of the year so far. I like the asterisk there. Uh, why is this the biggest cannabis news? Um, everyone in the uh, uh marijuana industry and the reform movement has been uh, using gigantic terms to describe this news uh everything from monumental to historic to the you know biggest reform in a generation um it's it's really it'd be primarily because it's the it's the first indication basically since the 1970s that the federal government is formally prepared to acknowledge that uh, cannabis has medical benefits um that that's uh, that's prim- primarily what this uh move would signify That cannabis has medical benefits, which means if it's rescheduled from one to three, this gets a little wonky, but if it's rescheduled from one to three, doesn't that mean the FDA might step in? I mean, all of a sudden this becomes more like a medication? That's exactly what it means. Um, And the import of that is really still very murky um, because... Uh, private companies, pharmaceutical companies that have federal uh, government approval to to manufacture, distribute, sell Schedule Three drugs like ketamine, Tylenol with codeine, some anabolic steroids, things like that, they typically have to spend between 10 and 12 years and roughly a billion dollars in investment to get uh, to do enough studies and get and gather enough data to prove that their drugs that these drugs essentially are safe uh, for human consumption um and and prove that to the fda and, and get uh the thumbs up essentially from the fda and the dea both um and so that, that it's 
the, the the bottom line is no none of the uh, current U.S. cannabis industry as we know it today uh, is really prepared to do that. And so it's um, th- there's a lot that is unclear about this, um, and it has uh, it's a long way from the finish line too uh, until it's formally done. Um, so it's there's still a lot of questions swirling. I mean, I can understand why the cannabis industry might bristle at new sorts of regulation, and yet critics of cannabis might say, great, more regulation, uh, especially in the face of high-potency marijuana. The, the tax implications are huge here, and that, that trickles down as well to consumers. Talk about the, the taxes here, which might go, as you write, from like 80% down to closer to 30 it yeah it, it varies depending on the business the type of business how they do their taxes that sort of thing but the long and the short of it is there's a federal um provision in in the tax code um that uh, basically um prohibits marijuana companies any any business or professional or professional uh who um makes or sells schedule one or schedule two drugs they they're prohibited from claiming standard tax deductions um, and that's what that effectively means is that is that modern day state legal uh, marijuana companies pay an effective effective tax rate to the IRS of 80, 90, in some cases, 100 percent, literally. Um, and so basically what this would do by moving it to schedule three, uh, it would free up a lot of money moving forward. Um, but again, there are still a lot of questions about this, um, particularly around the timing um and how this would uh, apply starting when um and and that sort of thing but what is certain is that it would save the industry as a whole um i think it's safe to say hundreds of millions of dollars uh just in you know the next few years if this becomes a reality in the next couple of months okay without getting too weedy walk us through the next steps so this recommendation came from the u.s department of health and human services Yes. I understand at some point it winds up in the lap of the U.S. Attorney General. What what happens in between? So um, my understanding from uh, now at this point, uh, the Health and Human Services uh, Department is completely done with, with their role. Now it completely moves over to the Department of Justice and the, uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration, which has to put together its own study, its own recommendations based on um, what HHS has done and also their own analysis of law enforcement implications, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and then they uh, that agency presents its recommendations to Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Attorney General Garland is ultimately the one who makes a decision on whether or not cannabis stays as Schedule 1 or moves to Schedule 2, Schedule 3, Schedule 4, Schedule 5, or off of the controlled substances list altogether. Um, the general consensus, uh, well, and, and first of all, I should say there is no timeline. There's no firm ta- timeline or deadline for the Department of Justice or Attorney General Garland to, to make a decision on this. So it's also really unclear when we're going to hear of any resolution to this. It could be this year. It could be next year. Um, the general consensus among my sources is that it's uh, almost certain to be done before the next uh, election, uh, next November. Oh. Uh, but in between now and then, it's it, it could happen at, at any point. I've had sources predict that it's going to happen before the end of the year. Um, I've had others who say it's more likely to be first quarter or um, second quarter of next year. Um, but, uh, that's, that, that's what happens next. And so it's, 
Um, and, and between there, too, the uh, w- one of the interesting parts is the uh, Department of Justice and the DEA have to go through a, um, I believe it's a 60-day rulemaking period and then a 30-day judicial review period, um, at which point, I mean, the Department of Justice will essentially publish its intent uh, as far as, you know, rescheduling or descheduling or whatever it's going to do. And during the 30-day judicial review period, there's actually going to be an opportunity for uh, for stakeholders to potentially file suit huh. um, against the federal government over over what uh, the Department of Justice says it intends to do. And so th- there's a lot of things that could go sideways or or um, uh, really complicate this whole situation. And like I said before, a ton of unanswered questions. So uh, this is far from over. Yeah, and and in, in other words, someone could put the brakes on this. Um, after the announcement, CPR News reported that Mason Tvert, longtime advocate in Colorado for legalization, uh, expressed some hesitancy about how the DEA might indeed proceed. Um, my my sense, in a way, is that the folks in the legalization movement see this as a half measure and as a, yes. a potentially pretty thorny hairy one uh I, I you're getting a sense for that oh very much so yes this there um the, there there's a lot of celebration this week in in the cannabis industry at this news but there was also a lot of disappointment um primarily because uh a lot of folks do not believe that this goes far enough many many uh, people in the marijuana industry and the reform movement um were advocating for complete descheduling as it's called which is removal from uh, from the controlled substances list altogether that would be tantamount to full legalization that would also uh for instance uh, overturn a, a ton of uh, cannabis related criminal laws and, and penalties both at the federal level and i believe uh, across the, the nation at, at the state level ah. uh, as well um that that is one of the biggest complaints uh, by by reform folks but it, there are also business implications in terms of leaving it at schedule three in terms of, and not descheduling one of the other things that it does is moving moving cannabis to schedule three still um, requires all of the different U.S. states to continue operating um, in an insular way and not, uh, for instance, shipping marijuana products across state lines, like you know, from Colorado to Nebraska, say, or or anywhere else. Um, like that's going to remain illegal mm. um, for the time being. Right. And so th- there are, yeah, th- there's a lot of um, th- there's been a very mixed reaction in a lot of ways. There are also questions, I suppose, about the banking system, because even though cannabis is legal at the state level, there are so many federal regulations around banking that there's been uh, a kind of out of sync quality in the financial market. You know, some of the pushback we've heard after Wednesday's announcement is that the reclassification shouldn't happen because marijuana has become more potent and should be considered dangerous. Uh, what are you hearing there? That, that, uh, that That's a really thorny question. That is a tough one to answer. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways that uh, depends on your point of view. Um, I haven't uh, written as much about that question, honestly. Um, it could arguably be a you know very scientific one. I would I would agree that uh, cannabis has definitely gotten more potent. Uh, everybody in the industry will tell you that uh, potency and higher THC numbers 
uh, are what draw uh, a lot of consumers, mm. uh, for instance. And, and there's a, there's a lot of incentive to to have uh, and sell the the highest potent potency products. Um, what exactly this means on that front, I, I, I think that's another question that really has still yet to be answered. Um, because one of the one of the problems uh, anyone in the industry will also tell you for years has been uh, simple barriers to to research uh, on on all of these questions uh, because of marijuana status as a Schedule One drug. Uh-huh. Um, and so, I, hopefully, fingers crossed, this rescheduling will open up research into both the positive and potentially negative effects of, of cannabis, short-term and long-term, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a chicken-and-egg proposition, right? People say, well, we, we want good science. We want research that tells us if it's safe. And yet the limitations yeah. on research are pretty draconian. And so it's hard to then come up with answers. So there are implications, as you say, for R&D here. You're yeah. going to be answering a lot of questions, John Schroyer, over the next months and years. Thanks for helping raise those questions with us. I appreciate your reporting. Absolutely. Senior reporter John Schroyer, based in Denver for Green Market Report, which covers the cannabis industry. Meanwhile, our own Benta Berkland has been monitoring reaction here in Colorado to this proposed schedule change. And hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. What are you hearing locally? Well, there's been a mixed response. Like John mentioned, many with close ties to the industry called it a step in the right direction, a huge potential victory. But they also want cannabis declassified altogether. And I talked to former Democratic state lawmaker Jonathan Singer. He's been a big champion of the industry. And he was the key person who helped set up the state's regulatory system after Colorado legalized recreational marijuana. And he said he's worried about unintended consequences. If it's a prescription, does it have to go through the FDA approval process? If it has to go through the FDA approval process, you know, the naysayers out there or the doom and gloomers out there might say, well, I guess it's time to take medical cannabis off the market completely until the FDA uh, approves something, which would be a complete 180 from what has been a very promising and successful regulatory framework in Colorado. So it's complicated like everything in life. But it begs those levels of questions. And I'd also note that U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper earlier this month, before this recommendation was announced, Mm. said that he didn't think marijuana should be a scheduled drug. And that's interesting because back when he was governor of Colorado, you may remember that Hickenlooper opposed marijuana legalization. But he said he's since changed his thinking. The makers were probably better off with more and marijuana consumption, probably less alcohol consumption, because they do seem to be related somewhat. Uh, and certainly we're not any worse off. That's probably the better way to say it. And we're people with smoking pot as part of their relaxation or kickback process. Said the former beer brewer. I'll note. <laughs> it's fascinating that we're having the medical conversation here because, of course, in Colorado, medical marijuana was legalized before recreational. Uh, But Benta, I know you've spoken with people who bristle at all this and oppose reclassification. Well, in in recent years, Colorado's really been grappling with how to get more data on the impact of highly potent marijuana products. And these are extracted from the plant and they're consumed in a number of different forms. The THC levels can be up to nine times higher than in cannabis flower. And this is a lot more widespread since legalization. 
And Dawn Reinfeld heads the Boulder-based nonprofit Blue Rising, and she's worked on state legislative policy to really try to reduce youth access to this highly potent marijuana. And she says the federal government's announcement is dangerous. I don't think this is the time or this is the way to do this, that the uh, federal government needs to have a better understanding of what high-potency THC is and what the products are. And this announcement makes me think that they are still thinking that this is the pot from the Woodstock years, and we know that it's not. And she said it's misguided to suggest regulating highly potent products the same way as those with low levels of THC. I'm really concerned about who is informing the federal government, what science they are looking at, and are they really looking and talking to people in the communities, especially in Colorado, that have been very severely negatively impacted? And based on this recommendation, I would say the answer is no. Benta, thank you for bringing that perspective to us. Thanks, Ryan. From our public affairs team that's been to Berkland, read her reporting along with Ben Marcus's on the potential rescheduling of cannabis at CPR.org. And we'll be right back with the scourge of early onset colon cancer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Subscribe to The Lookout from CPR News to get the big news and get more connected to Colorado. The Lookout newsletter is delivered to your inbox with the big stories from across Colorado every morning. Subscribe to The Lookout now at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We brought you the story in March of a young Denver couple battling colon cancer at the same time, all while raising a child. Casey, you've tried calculating the odds that spouses would both get colon cancer so close together and so young. What did you come up with? About one in a hundred million. One in a hundred million. Yeah. Is that like getting struck by lightning or? I think to me the weird thing is there's 300 million people in the United States, so it's actually not as rare as I expected when mm. we both got diagnosed. When you think of it over a population, I yeah. guess. Yeah, but you just don't think it's going to happen to you. You'd much rather win the Powerball, and that's about the same odds, than you would two people getting colon cancer in the same household. The voices of Casey Peters and Eric Stanley. Well, we've learned that Casey died Wednesday at home. She was 37. Despite the stigma of this disease, she was very public about her diagnosis in the press, on social media, and at fundraisers for the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, where Jennifer Rosenblatt is special events manager. We know that people do not necessarily talk about bowel movements or change in bowel movements or anything related to GI issues. And by talking about the high incidence of CRC and about the symptoms, we can remove that stigma. I mean, and Casey was very straightforward. I mean, she told you as it was, and that included talking about these things that are uncomfortable to talk about. And she may have saved many lives as a result, Rosenblatt says. 
Today, let's remember Casey by listening back to my conversation with her, her husband Eric, and oncologist Dr. Christopher Liu of the University of Colorado Cancer Center. We discussed how these types of cancers are affecting younger and younger people. Casey, you were talking about when you go to a hairdresser. Yeah, the hairdresser that I go to in my neighborhood has four women under the age of 45 with advanced stage colon cancer. I can say that I have a young friend, uh, certainly under 45, the recommended screening age, who has rectal cancer. Mm -hmm. And his prognosis is promising, but it's been, boy, a tough road to hoe. Okay, I want to ask about this idea that husband and wife both get a colon cancer diagnosis in less than two years, uh, even as they're trying to raise a child with it. Like, that's not difficult enough. Uh, how you doing? First, <laughs> can I just say how you doing? Uh, do you remember the first week of COVID where everything was just a mess and everyone was trying to homeschool their kids with like whatever they had around the house and trying to keep this normalcy while everything was just falling apart around them. Yes. And you know what I remember about that first week is how much we all flocked to liquor stores. To deal with. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have lots of different medications, but um, <laughs> no, uh, but it does feel a little bit like that chaos on a regular basis. Hmm. So Constantly trying to figure it out. Well, There's... he and I have separate chemo schedules. So when you get chemotherapy, it's every two weeks. And so basically he's either sick for the week or I'm sick for the week. And so, Did you plan it that way? Uh, no, but it's almost better than both of us being sick at once. I can imagine. Because having two parents sick and having a six-year-old trying to run around is really hard. There's not much room for error, but it's certainly doable. Like, if we're just both going through chemo, we've kind of got it figured out so that we can make sure Nate gets to school and have fun and, and we can run the household and we both still work. Where it gets hard is if one of us gets an infection and has to go into the hospital, then you call in on the reserves of friends and everybody. We live 10 minutes away from CU Anschutz, which is an amazing hospital. Mm. And we have a very good group of supportive friends out here who, if we need a play date for Nate so we can nap, they offer to do that. Mm. It's, it's taking a village. Yeah, it is. Do you ever crave being in chemo at the same time holding hands? I mean, we've like, done it. Oh, you have. Yeah, have there's a yeah. We had one day where <laughs> I called it couples chemotherapy, yeah. and it was it, it was fine. I mean, chemo is just kind of boring. You sit there for a few hours while a, they have a, a tube hooked up to you, um, and you'd much rather sleep honestly during chemo then have someone bothering you with a bunch of, honey, did we remember to do this today? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody faces it a little differently. Casey tries to work when she can through it. Um, I try to treat that as like a day off where I bring a little video game system to the hospital and that mm -hmm. way I don't mind it as much. And you see people getting the chemotherapy and everyone's got their own different ways to make themselves feel strong and, and get through it. Will you take me to the moment, Casey, when you, dealing with your own colon cancer diagnosis, learned that your husband, Eric, had colon cancer? What was that moment like? It was ultimately, utterly, completely heartbreaking. He had gone to the ER earlier that night, assuming that he was going to get discharged right away. He even apologized, saying, hey, hon, I know that ER visits are kind of expensive, but I'm going to go and get checked out anyway. He had been texting me all evening saying, oh, they're about to discharge me. Don't worry. I'll be home in the next couple hours. 
And then he said, oh, well, my hemoglobin is low. We need to go get more tests. And then he got a CT scan. And because of my diagnosis, we knew how bad the disease could get. Um, and so there's Yours a, was quite advanced. So there's a number we use called a CEA or carcinogenic embryonic antigen. With that, zero to three is normal. And mine had gotten as high as 150, which is really scary. But that night after he had gotten a CT scan that showed that there was cancer everywhere, he'd gotten his blood test back and his was 25,000. And at that a- point... And normal is one to three? Zero to three. Whoa. 25,000. And mine was metastasized and gotten up to 150. And I thought that was awful. You'd been upstaged. I'd been... <laughs> definitely. Uh-huh. We, we do joke sometimes who gets to be the sicker one. Um, <laughs> but... That night, hearing that, I just assumed that he was going to die. I thought, there's nothing here. I was mourning him already. And immediately I called some friends. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. I got through to my boss, um, who happens to also be a friend of mine, and was just heartbroken thinking that he wouldn't survive the month. And in fact, the next day when we were meeting with a new oncologist, I'd asked what his odds were. And she politely just kept saying that, you know, most people live about two and a half years with this disease. She wouldn't give me any other indication as to what Eric's prognosis was or if I could count on him being there for, you know, at that point it was February. If I could count on him being there by my birthday in April, it was just so overwhelming because I knew how bad it could be and I knew how bad he was. Thankfully, though, he's been reacting to chemotherapy in a way that is just mind-boggling. Now, I've been very fortunate with how I've reacted. There's even among colon cancer, there's a lot of different types and different mutations. Mm -hmm. And the one that I have, again, did really well under treatment. So the CEA number that I had, that was 25,000. A year later, I'm now down to around 15. and Not 15,000, just, just 15. My goodness. Yeah, okay. so through a combination of different chemotherapies and immunotherapies, it's really gotten it under control, which, again, I, there's nothing that I really did to do that. I still have the same diet. It's just I'm fortunate enough that my body is responding to the And treatments. I will say that men handle chemotherapy better than women, generally, And so when I am sick as a dog and super tired and I'm like, didn't you just have the same cycle last week and you were fine? He's just brushes it off his shoulder and says, it's kind of nice to be a guy. Well, well, it's kind of true, but it's also, you know, I I understand that I I have a very fortunate reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, maybe after a day or two, I can be up and walking around and helping out. And that's been, again, one of the little blessings of terrible odds that we've had. But there have been some strokes of luck along the way. Eric, there was a moment where you had to kind of steel yourself to tell Casey that you had yeah. a colon cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So uh, maybe bring us to that same okay. event from your perspective. I honestly don't know if I remember. Um, that that makes sense to me. Yeah, I think I may have given you a call, Casey. I don't think that would have worked too well over text message, but it was like Casey described. It was pretty quick. I think I made it into the AR at six o'clock. By nine o'clock, they had given me a CT scan, and it was obvious that I had uh, widespread cancer in my colon and in my liver, which I knew at the time was stage four because it was in a couple places. 
So I'm pretty sure I gave Casey a call. I got to imagine I said, I don't know how to tell you this. And, hmm. and there was a lot of crying. I, I think I called my mom after that. Again, a lot of crying. And it was a little bit surreal. Um, and then later that night when I got the really elevated CEA number, I didn't know what to do with it. I don't have the experience of how high those can go. And I've since learned that some people might have it up to 100,000 and it, it can range and it's a tricky thing. But at the time, it was just like, I'm exponentially worse than Casey. What what does this mean? It was, And you'd seen what her journey was to that point. Exactly. Did it make you a better husband to her? Oh, going through the same thing that she was? Yeah. Uh, no, because I'm doing it really well. So I, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. No, it, I, it did. May, it, may I just say, like, <laughs> it's so clear that both of you rely on humor, which is why yeah. I have felt it's okay maybe yeah. to oh, yeah. do no, it. But is that a tool that you use in the... I, I think, think it is. Yeah. Humor and trying to find the best of things. I have a tattoo on my arm that is this too shall pass. It's the handwriting of my mom, my six-year-old, my husband, and my sister. And I think so often we have to think about things in bite-sized pieces. If we start to think about what our lives are going to be like in two to three years, mm. that's terrifying. Yes. And that's when we'll get really sad. And maybe once a quarter we'll sit there and just cry and think about how bad we have it. Other than that, we just try to find out, well, at least it's not this. And trying to take it in those bite-sized pieces really does help. I will say one other thing about Eric getting diagnosed, and this is the, the issue of having a dual diagnosis, is I actually had an appointment the next day for my own CT scan. I was going into the hospital that day anyway, and I like broke into my oncologist's clinic um, not broken to, yeah. but I barged <laughs> stormed in. in. I stormed in and I was like, I need to talk to Dr. Liu right now. I need to talk to my oncologist right now. And I need to like hear that this is going to be okay. And, you know, it was super nice of them. Pulled me back into a room for five minutes, just heard me go off on saying, this is just not fair. What are the odds? Do you think he's going to make it? All those things. And, and really, the, the answer at that point was, we don't know. We don't know. We're going to hear from Dr. Lou shortly. Let me get back to that question, Eric. Has this made you a better partner? Um, I think so. I There's been an interesting thing with it, and, and the hospital has provided us with a social worker that we can talk to, and that's been really, really helpful. Huh. And one thing she mentioned that goes into our dynamics is, in our relationship for a while, Casey was the caregiver and I was always the caregiver because I was healthy um, or thought I was. And now it's changed where we have to be good at switching those roles and mm. whoever's healthier has to be the caregiver. The other person gets to be the caregiver. And I think understanding that has really helped me out. Um, it's helped me understand more like, yeah, we can get through this together and how do we work as a team? Well, it occurs to me that vows often include in sickness and in health. <laughs> I certainly did. But the, the assumption is not that both are sick at the same time, right? Like the, the baked in idea is hopefully one of you can take care of the other. There are some things with colon cancer that I won't get into for um, your audience's sake, but it can be kind of gross. And what was really interesting was I went through a lot of those gross things, you know, a couple of years prior and Eric had to figure out how to help me dress my wounds, help me do all these other things. And then when it came time for him to do that, I immediately wasn't timid about any of it. Mm. Um, and so I so had So are you a better empathy. partner? 
I I will say we've always had a really healthy relationship, yeah. but I think having that empathy and knowing how how the other one feels really does make it so that I know that if he says, hey, I need a nap right now, I know he's not being uh, lazy. I know it's that he really needs a nap because sometimes I really need mm-hmm. a nap. And so I trust that he's listening to his body in the same way that I listen to mine. The only problem is when we both need a nap um, and we don't have anyone to to um, Watch pick the up six the six-year-old. Yeah. That play, he gets Netflix. And I'll say watching Casey go through it gave me a template of how to handle it with strength and with dignity. Um, you know, I, I look at how she handled it and want to do the same myself because she, you know, she carried herself incredibly well through it. And having that as an example, I think, was very helpful for me. Mm. Okay, to your child, what do you share with a six-year-old? A lot, actually. This has all been pretty normal for him. When He was three when I got diagnosed, and I had to spend two and a half weeks in the hospital with infections and after surgeries, and it was right before COVID, and so he got to come to the hospital and be next to me in the room, and the nurses would give him Jell-O. And so he thinks that every time mommy or daddy goes to the hospital, it's mostly just so we can bring back Jell-O for him. (laughs) He's, He's since learned a little bit more than that. He knows the term cancer. Maybe a month ago when I was driving him to school, we were talking about it and we settled on the analogy of a snowball where the cancer cells are little snowflakes and the cancer mass is a snowball. And what the doctors are doing for us is helping us chipping away at that snowball, Mm. making it smaller and making it easier for us. So he knows the term. He knows that we're sick and he knows that the doctors are making us better. One thing that's been actually helpful for us is that we don't think he understands three, four, five years down the road or could understand that, that, you know, hey, mommy and daddy may have X percent of being here when you're 10. Like that wouldn't work with him. So we've been forced to explain it one day, one month at a time. And that keeps us grounded, like what Casey was saying earlier. Yes. Because, you know, if we have to say out loud to him, well, listen, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I'm going to go get this treatment. And I tend to feel pretty good right now and we're together and we're going to have fun this weekend. That reminds us, well, that's what we're going to do. You don't look too far ahead. It does give us a little bit of YOLO, though. So like I every time YOLO for the for the the non kids. YOLO, you only live once. (laughs) Yes. It it means that you have to seize the day um, for old school. But it means that if there's a beautiful day out, we are outside. And it means that I make sure that if I'm feeling good, I'm spending time with him. And the moment that I get home from the hospital, I'm reminding him how I'm proud that he was so good while I was gone. Dr. Liu, Casey described that scene of storming into your office and saying, you know, how is this possible? What's going to happen to us? How do you answer a patient like that? Have you ever seen anything like this before? So I don't think any of us really have ever seen anything where we have a married couple and then not only that young and then not only that in such a short amount of time have the two diagnoses uh, of the same cancer. It's just extraordinarily rare. Having said that, what we are seeing in our clinics is a tremendous increase in early onset colorectal cancer. What do we mean by early onset? You know, the screening age used to be 50. Hit 50, get screened for colon cancer. 
because of this rise in the incidence of early onset colorectal cancer, it's now 45. So we really consider- And that would not have caught, by the way, either Eric or Casey. Exactly. And so we considered early onset colorectal cancer to be, you know, any diagnosis under the age of 45, and obviously Eric and Casey are both so young. This is extraordinarily rare, but we are seeing this trend not only in our clinics, not only in the state of Colorado, and not only in the United States- but we're actually seeing this trend worldwide as well. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you that because there's been so much. My mother is a colon cancer survivor, I'll say. And, you know, there was so much talk about the American diet versus like the Mediterranean diet. And uh, so you're seeing this globally. What light can you shed? Yeah. So unfortunately, not as much as I would like to. And I'm sure everybody listening to this, and especially Eric and Casey, we want to know what in the world happened. And it's a really complicated question. The answer is we, we just don't honestly know. And it's a very, very complex issue because what we really want is to be able to highlight one risk factor, one environmental exposure, one hereditary factor. But of course, that's likely not the case in any individual that develops colorectal cancer. And then when you look at a group of people, all who had different environmental exposures, different genetics, different diets, different everything... It's hard to really pinpoint any one thing. Mm -hmm. Can can we say it's hereditary at all? So we can say that hereditary issues or factors probably play a role in a minority of cases, right? And so while we do know that hereditary causes of colorectal cancer are more prevalent in early onset colorectal cancer, that makes sense, right? Because it's just if you have a hereditary predisposition to develop colorectal cancer, it's going to show up when you're younger. But it's still a vast minority of the cases that we see both, you know, again, in the United States and across the world. Of all ages, you mean? Well, correct. And even in the early onset, it's still a minority Uh of cases. And so, well, what does that mean? It means that colorectal cancer is likely being developed because of some combination of environmental factors, potentially diet, you know, even antibiotic use. And some of this is pointing to what we call the gut microbiome, the healthy bacteria that exists in our gut that helps us digest our food and that we coexist with peacefully. But if something alters or disrupts the gut microbiome, it can lead to more inflammation. It can lead to more of a chance for tumor to develop, Mm -hmm. right? Because when tumors develop, it's a little bit of a a chance, you know, mutation type event as well. And so all these factors kind of pour into even just one individual developing colorectal cancer. Many of the things that we learn in elementary school still hold very true. In fact, one of the best ways to alter your gut microbiome is to actually eat a diet that's healthy in fruits and vegetables, right? And that just sounds almost too simple to mm. be to be the answer. But it is true that if your plate has a lot of color on it, and as long as they're not Skittles, right, they're fruits and vegetables, you're likely having the type of diet that really is going to lead to better health. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't develop cancer in the future. Because but it just I means was that... a vegetarian for six years before developing cancer. Yeah, I mean, I if I were you, Casey, listening to the good doctor speak, I'd be like, well, don't judge me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was a vegetarian. I, I did all the right things. I was healthy and active and hiked every weekend. And before that, I had danced ballet for hours every week and still got Mm. this. And, you know, for those of you listening, when you look at Eric and Casey, number one, you would never know that they had any diagnosis of any cancer. But number two, you would also see them as two extraordinarily healthy individuals. And that's Mm. actually one of the things that I've seen in my clinic with early onset colorectal cancer. I've had division one athletes, I've had triathletes, I've had people whose lifestyles are easily much more healthy than mine. And so 
even with that fact alone, you can tell that this is much more complex than, well, it's got to be fast food. I mean, Casey's a great example of somebody who has just lived very, very healthy, yet developed this cancer. So it's something a little bit more complex than fast food, uh, sedentary lifestyle. Those are some of the risk factors that we think about for cancer, but that does not answer the question for early onset colorectal cancer. Well, and I hear you saying there are lots of factors, but it does make me wonder if science is searching for a trigger. Is there something that's supercharging this at the moment? Yeah. And I think with more knowledge about early onset colorectal cancer and more focus on this, we can actually start to do much more in-depth research But some of that means that we need to collect some of the tumors that we've seen in early onset colorectal cancer and look at them under the microscope and do some like mutational analysis and genetic analysis on these. I mean, I think what you're going to see over the next several years and even decades is just an explosion of research Mm. uh, in terms of the development of cause. And we're talking a lot about, you know, well, what are some of the things that cause this? And, you know, we certainly can't point to one particular risk factor. But one of the reasons why it's just so great that Casey and Eric are sharing their story is because one of the biggest things that we can do now is just make people aware that they should never hear the words, you're too young to develop colorectal cancer. We know that this is an increasing trend. We know by 2030 that 10% of all colon cancers and 22% of all rectal cancers will be seen in early or young adults. Mm. Wow, okay. You think about the numbers, there'll be over 150,000 diagnoses of colorectal cancer in the United States this year. So this is a big population. The recommendations, and frankly, I imagine the insurance reimbursements don't seem to follow what you're saying at this point. I mean, I'll acknowledge that the age went from 50 to 45, as we've discussed, but cold comfort for Casey and Eric. That's right. And, you know, I think one of the things that, again, is just so critical about Casey and Eric's story and why they're here today and telling their story is really just to raise awareness. Now, the question is, boy, do we need to take all 20-year-olds and give them colonoscopies? And the answer is that we would likely actually hurt more people with that procedure than we would actually help in finding an early-stage colorectal cancer. There's always that tension when you talk about increasing screening. Yeah, but what about the non-invasive types of screenings? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I was going to say is the message out there to all individuals, regardless of your age, is to never ignore your symptoms. Uh, You know your body better than anybody. When you know that something's different, you're seeing blood in the stool, you're seeing unexplained weight loss or abdominal pain, you know, those are things that should be checked out. Again, a majority of the time, it's not going to be colorectal cancer, but it's just important to not ignore those symptoms. Now, Casey had mentioned there's some non-invasive screening tests Meaning Uh, not a colonoscopy? That's right. I mean, there's simple, actually quite easy tests, right? You can actually test your stool for blood. There's even a a stool DNA test called Cologuard that's available as well. So it doesn't all have to be colonoscopies. So some of this is like OTC. Well, so a lot of times you're going to get these tests from your primary care provider, oh. which is another take-home message is that we want everybody to you know, have a good relationship with their primary my care provider. My primary care doctor ignored me. And my primary care doctor, I had gone to see a few times. And actually, I had been excused from the ER four times before they finally admitted me. I was throwing up blood. I was throwing up for 12 hours a day. And they said that I had a stomach virus. Um, Because I'm allergic to the CT contrast, whenever I would get a scan, it wouldn't show very much. Mm. So they just said, well, you clearly have a stomach virus. And I was like, I have a toddler at home and he's not sick. How is this possible? And they said, well, 
your digestive system is just really long. And so it'll take a long time for it to get out of your system. If you just stop eating X, Y, and Z, you'll be fine. And it gave me a complex. It was almost like gaslighting. And I'll say you are absolutely not the first woman to say they were not believed in the healthcare system. There's been research. uh, The Colorectal Cancer Alliance has said that many young people have had their diagnosis delayed by months, if not years, because doctors don't understand that this could be a young onset disease. Hmm. And so they won't refer them for a colonoscopy. Doctor, do you want to reflect on that? So when you look at the older adult population, uh, from the time of onset of symptoms, like seeing blood in the toilet, uh, to actually receiving a diagnosis of colorectal cancer, the average number of days is about 25. When you look at early onset colorectal cancer, that is really pushed out to 6 to 12 months, and as Casey mentioned, even beyond. And those are critical days and months, I'm guessing. That's right. And, you know, we have actually research from the University of Colorado that's been performed that shows, again, the earlier you get diagnosed from the onset of symptoms, the lower the stage of colorectal cancer. And, of course, when you're waiting a year or more to receive your diagnosis, you're more likely to have stage 4 or advanced colorectal cancer. So, again, you know, one of the big take-home messages is, you know, not all abdominal pain or even bleeding is necessarily cancer, but we always want our primary care doctors to have that in the back of their minds, mm-hmm. right? We, we really don't want people to become hypochondriacs and say that it's cancer when it likely isn't cancer. But as long as you're always thinking about it as a possible diagnosis, right, and not just saying, oh, well, Casey, you're too young too to young, have, have right. colorectal cancer. As long as somebody's always at least having it in the back of their mind, it will shorten the time it takes to actually establish a diagnosis. Casey also brings up another point of, well, what if I don't feel heard in my appointment? If I, What if I don't feel like somebody's taking my symptoms very seriously? That's a very difficult situation to be in. You know, we always encourage our patients to be, you know, advocates for their own health. Again, you know your body better than anybody else. If you feel like something is really, really different, it's okay to get a second opinion, to get a second look. And again, we just don't want anybody to ever hear the words, you're too young to develop colorectal cancer, because again, we have two great examples here that that is not the case. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, yeah thanks of course. Thank us. you. Thank you. Oncologist Dr. Christopher Liu of the University of Colorado Cancer Center from back in March, he joined us with husband and wife Eric Stanley and Casey Peters, who were both diagnosed with colon cancer. Peters passed away Wednesday at age 37. A GoFundMe page is raising money for her husband and son. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Sharing other people's stories is what Vic Vela does most of the time. But for the season finale of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, Vic shares a story about a major health scare he experienced this year, told through his own audio diaries. I've overcome addiction. I've overcome overdoses. I've overcome HIV. What else do you want me to overcome? Hear Vic's story on Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by CU Anschutz. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Finally today, disco music from an unlikely artist. Recently, I was invited to a 1970s dance party. Our host asked guests to contribute to a playlist, and that's when I remembered the Ethel Merman disco album from 1979. The next year, the genre was declared dead, 
We can't say if that's Ethel's fault. We can say the Broadway belter lived in Metro Denver for a time in the 1950s in Cherry Hills Village. She was married to the CEO of Continental Airlines, Bob Six. The airline was headquartered here. Merman performed at Red Rocks with the Denver Symphony Orchestra at one point. But we will leave you with a track from that disco album, a bell-bottomed, big-collared remix of There's No Business Like Show Business. former Denver resident doing disco. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues in showbiz. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC.